Welcome to the Value Investor TV podcast. My name is Beko and my partner Hari. Hello. Welcome to our channel, everybody. Uh, welcome to our podcast. Uh, this episode, we are um, going to talk about a company that was suggested to us by one of our listeners, Signet, Signet Jewelers. Um, Hari, you mentioned to me about this company maybe a couple years ago. Yep. Um, because of the way they lay out their retail store and how innovative that was or kind of a good model to look after when you're analyzing retail business. So I took a look at this business some time ago and, um, and one, of our, one of our listeners told us that we should check this out. So here we are in this episode, we are going to uh, go into this company in detail. But first, let's uh, let's hear from Hari you about uh, the, the the usual um, disclaimer and and maybe some key uh, key key items that we always touch on in the beginning. Yeah, so this is the Value Investor TV podcast. We are a podcast that teaches you about the concepts behind value investing. We are not financial advisors. We don't know your specific financial situation, or um, so please consult with a uh, an advisor before making any decisions. Great. And um, just so you guys know, as I mentioned earlier, this this company came to our attention because one of our listeners wanted us to analyze it. So if you guys have a company that you want us to look at and get our take on, please feel free to send that over to us at info at valueinvestor.org. So email us at info at valueinvestor.org. Uh, and as we will do in this episode, and as we have done in several previous episodes, we are analyzing companies based on our checklist. So we go through a checklist of questions to analyze every company. And if you'd like to have a copy of that also, please send us an email at info at valueinvestor.org. Just one last thing before we actually get started, Slack channel, Slack channel, Slack channel. So if you guys want to get involved more intimately, and ask us questions uh, about, I don't know, day to day, you know, what's happening in the market currently, or if you guys have questions specific to a specific company, you can do that uh, by joining a Slack community, Slack channel. So you have direct access to both of us, Hari and myself, as well as the rest of the listener community, value investor community. So if you guys want to join that, also email us at info at valueinvestor.org and we would be happy to send over an invitation. Yeah, and you know, just one thing to add to that is, um, you know, we we publish the podcast, you know, a couple of times a week, but on Slack you can hear from us directly and get answers. And you know, with the way that the market is right now, in the middle of March 2020 or the, close to the end of March 2020, things change very quickly. Um, and you can get hear what other people who are our listeners do. And I'm I'm actually very proud um, of our listeners. They are in many ways, um, follow us very closely and, and, you know, the, the value investing principles and they present their case in a reasoned, uh, manner. And I, you know, it's very humbling to hear that they, they do that because, you know, when you're learning, um, to invest, you know, a lot of people that I see kind of follow the trader mentality. That's kind of the natural mentality for people, but this is a reasoned, uh, logical approach. That's what we are trying to teach you guys. And, to see other people follow it and make good, you know, investment decisions is always, you know, very um, pleasing to us because 
you know, Becco and I know how to do this, but you know, we're trying to teach and it's, it's always good to see as a teacher that people follow what you say. So, uh, please keep it coming and, you know, please message us on Slack with any questions that you have. Excellent. Excellent point. So let's get started with this, uh, with a checklist, shall we, Harry? Yeah. So right off the bat, the first question we always get, always ask is what does the company do? So let's start off with that. Yeah. So Signet Jewelers is, uh, in their own words, the world's largest retailer of diamond jewelry. Um, and they are, uh, they operate in North America, um, 2,700, uh, locations. So I'll, I'll preface this by saying this is from the 2019 annual report. Uh, as of today, March 23rd, they have not published the annual report for 2020. And the reason that we wanted to talk about this particular company is actually because of that, that, you know, the, the market conditions right now with feds changing the interest rate and all of this stuff means that you're operating off of imperfect information. So what I'm trying to do is piece together evaluation without having a full uh, 10K. And why would I want to do that? Well, I want to do that because sometimes market opportunities appear and you have to make decisions. And so incomplete decision-making is how the, what separates the great value investors from the good ones or even the mediocre ones. So um, uh, with that aside, you know, uh, Signet Jewelers is a, you know, they operate about 2,700 locations in North America um, under the brands K, Zales, Jared, um, James Allen, Piercing Pagoda, and those, um, you know, mostly operate out of mall-based locations. Um, they also operate in Canada under the People's uh, brand and Mappins, and internationally, they uh, operate in the UK, Republic of Ireland, and the Channel Islands under H. Samuel and Ernest Jones. So, um, you know, the, the short of it is that they are a jeweler. They sell mostly diamond jewelry, but they also sell watches uh, and other, um, you know, precious uh, stones and metals uh, as well. Um, and, you know, what was, what was kind of interesting about this company is that, like many other um, retailers, they have been hit hard by... Uh, you know, the, the move from retail being in person to, you know, the e-commerce world. So in 2019, um, they started what they they called the path to brilliance, which is um, their reorganization of the company based on um, geography instead of um, based on their, their brand names. So what I found interesting about that was they differentiated K, Zales, and Jared. And if you if you watch these you know, you've probably heard the, if you watch football on TV, uh, American football, you see the uh, every kiss begins with K. You know, they have these classic, you know, things that they've been rolled out for a long time. Um, and they were targeting specific, you know, people like K was targeted towards men who watch, you know, who are buying jewelry for their girlfriends um, and things like that. So they've kind of just gone away from that altogether and said, this is the, the new strategy is geography based we are trying to make the customer experience much better. That's part of their path to brilliance um, thing. And then they've talked about the omni-channel presence. So if, for retail, in retail world now, omni-channel means they've added e-commerce as well as brick and mortar. Um, so you can buy <clears throat> anywhere, whether you're in person or online, um, and then try and uh, instill a culture of efficiency and agility. So being able to respond to the customer. So that's kind of just, you know, a very, very brief overview of them um, 
you know, for for what they're doing. Yeah, it's interesting that every time we talk, every time we talk about a retailer, right? It was, you know, he started off with Skechers, Canada Goose, and GameStop. We looked at Alta as well. Every retailer right now is going through some sort of transformation, meaning you know they have to evolve into they have to evolve into the 21st century where e-commerce is a ma- is a major influence, is a major force. In the retail industry, and so obviously, diamond, you know, jewel, jewelry, you know, buying and selling jewelry is not an exception here. It sounds like they're under the same kind of pressure, right? Um, and you know, I, I think the interesting thing about them being in that space is that, you know, just how large, you know, they're considered the largest jeweler in um, in the world but they only own about 7% of the market share in the U S. So that just kind of tells you how fragmented the, the jewelry market is, right. That, mm. that, um, so anyway, we'll, we'll keep going, uh, through, but yeah. just kind That's of gives a, you a, give you an idea of the scope of this, this business. Mm-hmm. It was an interesting, interesting fact. So let's move on to the second question, which is, does the com- company have, does the business have a competitive advantage? Uh, and we have a few categories that we like to touch on to categorize them. So the first off is brand. Does uh, the Signet have a brand competitive moat? So I, I think if they do have any moat at all, there is um, there is a brand moat, but I, I wouldn't say it's a very strong one. And the reason I say that is when you buy jewelry, right, you have the option to go to shop around to look for whatever you know, um, you're looking for and you, you know, you can basically walk in a mall and go from K jewelers to, you know, the various other mall retailers, um, to a department store to wherever. Um, but then you can also go to these mom and pop shops. You can go to a lot of different places, um, and really get, it's an undifferentiated product. So, you know, nobody says I want a K diamond wedding band, right. Or, a K, you know, or a Zales um, brooch, right? They they are not based on the brand is not why you decide to purchase it, right? Now you compare that to Tiffany's, right? Tiffany's has a iconic box. It comes in a particular color um, and people tend to pay more for the Tiffany's stuff because it's a much higher luxury brand, right? So these, so K and Zales are trying to target more of a, a middle-class kind of a uh, buyer, they still want to buy something nice, but um, there's a lot of competition in that space. And so Jared and, you know, and Kay and Zales are not really, you know, there there will be certainly places that people will shop, but that's not the destination when they're going to buy, right? And that's that's part of their problem, right? Is that even though they have a fairly large presence across the United States, and it, just about any mall that you go to, you will find one of their their stores, that doesn't mean it's the destination that you're going to when you have to buy stuff. Yeah. So on that, I, I do have a clarifying question since I haven't done any diamond shopping myself. Uh, I'm not really familiar with in th- this industry, but is, are they, are, do they actually carry their own diamond or are they just a pure retailer that sells other people's, other companies' diamonds? 
so they do and luxury they, items. They do uh, a combination of both. So they they source the diamonds um, themselves, and they make certain designs that they may buy in bulk. So they may go to a particular jeweler and um, buy enough capacity, you know, bulk from that, you know, to to make it if it's worth their while. And they mention that in the annual report. So they may have a unique design that they may sell for a season or two um, with a specific, you know, um, kind of setup. Like you may have seen the chocolate diamonds that they had, the Le'Veon chocolate diamonds. So they, there's things like that that they do where they they may promote it and they may push it in a, in a certain way. Um, <clears throat> but they also sell kind of more standard cuts like, you know, there's the princess cut and there's different types of cuts of diamonds that you would get anywhere, right? And you can get those in, and it, it basically comes down to the commodity is, you know, what is the size of the, and, and the weight and the clarity and all these other things that, that essentially sets the price for a diamond. Um, so, you know, they have a little bit of, of scale that allows them to buy stuff, but for the most part, they're buying a commodity, they're selling a commodity, um, and they don't really have a way to di differentiate itself, right? And so nobody is going to be able to look at something unless you're a expert in this and say that's a K diamond or that's a Zales diamond or or whatever. So when they ha they have done those kind of uh, seasonal like specialty things where they buy a bunch and you know they have it, but for the most part they're also just selling, you know, about half of their uh, sales come from wedding and you know, the other half is, you know, just gift type jewelry. Um, and then a very small percentage is like watches and stuff like that. Hmm. I see. Okay. Let's move on uh, to the next moat, next competitive advantage uh, category, which is network effect. Is there any network effect here uh, with, with Signet jewelry? So there's no benefit as me as a customer, if, if, if somebody else has a K jewel, you know, K diamond or that I also benefit from it. Um, you know, so there, I don't see any network effects here. Okay. Switching cost. So there's really no moat, uh, from that switch, you know, from once you buy a diamond, they offer a little bit of service that allows you to get it cleaned. Um, and if there's any issues with it, um, you know, you can get it replaced, you know, within the first six months, as long as you meet certain criteria, you can get it replaced. Um, if it, you know, if the setting fails or something like that. Um, but for the most part, you know, buying a K going to another store for the next time you purchase something, there's no real benefit. Um, so it's, it's more of a one-time purchase and, a, you know, for most people, their wedding band purchase is a one-time thing, right? Yeah. I also imagine that it is something that a lot of other companies also offer. Yeah. Right. So it's not really a competitive advantage if everyone else does it. Well, and, and think about it this way. Half of their stuff is wedding. The other half, though, is gifts. And so if you're looking to buy a gift for, you know, a significant other or, you know, a family member or something like that, your gift doesn't have to just be jewelry, right? You can, you, you want to spend $200. You can also buy them, you know, clothing or furniture or, uh, you know, some other type of gift. So their, their competition isn't even necessarily just jewelry, right? It's, you know, so you think about them as a jeweler, but 
you know, their money may be spent in other ways. You know, you may buy, buy them a plane ticket and go somewhere, you know, uh, for, you know, for a vacation, right? Mm-hmm. So the money that you spend at one place is not necessarily being allocated just for jewelry, right? People don't have a jewelry budget or some mm-hmm. people may do, but it's a gift budget. And so you should be really thinking about it. Where is the competition for their their money is really what I would buy a significant other or anything like that, right? So any type yeah. of gift that I would purchase. It, it triggers kind of two just thoughts and comments. One is understanding the market, understanding the total addressable market. You know, a lot of people talk about total addressable market. Yeah. I think that's one thing that we have to be careful of and be mindful of. And the other comment just came into my head when uh, when you were talking about what their competition was. You know how Netflix, when they first came out, they said our competition is all form of all forms of entertainment, not just yep. movies. They said right. our one of our competitions is sleeping. Yeah, like people, you know, they can choose to watch Netflix or they can choose to sleep. It's you know upon customers' decision to do that, and they categorize sleeping as one of their competitive. Uh, another comp- competition. So I thought that to be fair, that was you, you can actually watch Netflix and sleep at the same time. So <laughs> that is true. That, that is, is what true. happens often when I try to watch a movie. So that is true. That is true. But like that, that that's this sort of thinking. I think is very helpful. I think that sort of thinking is very helpful, not only in terms of understanding the business, but also in terms of you know the the, the market opportunity and what kind of you know, pile of cash are they going after? So I think one thing I will say that a lot of people mistake when they think about investing is they fail to understand opportunity costs, right? So opportunity cost applies to everything, right? You can't, you have a certain amount of money, you can't use it twice, right? If you spend it in one place, you can't spend it in another. And that applies to what you purchase as an investment. It also applies to how a consumer thinks, right? And so, they may not even know it. They may not even know the term opportunity cost, but they realize that if I'm going to go buy out a buy a Nintendo Switch, well, I don't have an extra three hundred dollars to also buy a diamond for my girlfriend, right? So mm-hmm. I would always kind of think about that whenever you look at uh, businesses, right? When you look at Visa, right, their competition is not really Mastercard as much as it is. You know, they don't have competition, right? I can have both types of cards. And Visa still, you know, wins, right? So think of the opportunity cost in every kind of scenario, right? And what are the incentives for the consumer whenever they're purchasing something? And I think that'll help you really kind of crystallize the moat in your mind. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, let's move on to the next uh, competitive advantage category, which is low cost. Are they are they low cost provider in the diamond business? So no, they 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 do source the diamonds directly uh, from Africa, and they have a uh, from Botswana, and they have some you know scale that allows them to get some discount. But for the most part, they're not the um, the um, the ones mining the the diamonds. They don't have a supply chain benefit from from doing that. So <clears throat> I don't see there being a a significant low cost moat here. Okay. And then lastly, let's talk about intangible assets. Do they hold any intangible assets that could set them apart from other retailers? So no, I I, I, I don't think so. Um, 
I don't really see anything here like patents or um, anything that would make me think this company has a, a, a benefit that I can't see on the balance sheet or anything like that. It's, you know, this is a fairly straightforward retailer, right? They buy an item, they mark it up, they sell it. And mm-hmm. they sell it either in a retail store or they sell it online now. That's that's okay. kind of the 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 story there. So just to quickly kind of recap on that, um, I think we heard a lot of no's. Network network effect, network effect no, switching cost, you know, probably basically no, low cost, intangible assets, all no's. And then one thing that you did touch on was brand, but it was a slight it was a weak brand. Um competitive advantage but nonetheless it it was it was the only thing that you said yes to correct i i would say that they they do have some brand recognition but i don't know that that recognition translates to say paying a higher price right and that's really what a moat would would be is uh paying a higher price or driving customers away from their competitors towards um, them and i don't see that really here okay I think it's a good segue into the next question, which is how durable is the competitive advantage? What are the risks to the current competitive advantage, if there is any? Yeah, so I, I think the I think there's a lot of risk to their competitive advantage because as you know, you know, in twenty years ago, um, malls were kind of the place people went to buy stuff right? If you were looking for anything that was clothing, apparel, fashion, jewelry, you went to the mall, right? The mall as a, um, you know, as kind of the haven for shopping has kind of slowly eroded as the uh, internet has kind of taken over. And so their benefit is now they are in a sea of lots of other retailers online. You know, you can buy diamonds and other things, uh, uh, there and you don't have a real, you know, durable competitive advantage, right? I, I think first of all they don't have a moat that I would say is very strong, and two, because they don't have that, I don't know that you can even say that they have a durable competitive advantage, right? People are going to walk by, they're going to say, oh, that would be make a nice gift, and they go and purchase, right? And th- there's there's some value in being omnipresent, um, but I, I I don't know that there's a um, durability to it, right? Is if if K went away tomorrow, I'm just going to go find another place to buy jewelry, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah, one thing that I do want to touch on is you know this kind of transition period, be- transition period for a lot of retailers trying to become more omnipresent, omni omni channel, right? So from that perspective. I guess you could, you know, I guess you could make an argument for both, uh, both cases, but uh, you know, Signet, if there were any jewels, jewelers out there, they would be well poised to make that transition more smooth, more smoothly than other jewel jewelers because of their retail presence, because of, because of the brand, because of the you know the footprint that they already have. What do you think about that, from that perspective? Yeah, I mean, I I think there is, there's definitely benefit to being already present, right? I don't know that they're going to get a lot of new competition. This is an old market; it's growing. The jewelry market grows at around two and a half percent per year, so 
competition is not going to come from the new entrants. It's going to be coming from places where they're already an existing strong business like Amazon or Walmart or Costco, which a lot of people buy their jewelry now at Costco and, and places like that is that's where the moat is slowly getting eaten, right? Is people are going to Costco. I have a big discount at Costco because I pay for the membership. I love Costco because it has all this stuff. So I go and buy everything there, right? And Costco maybe gives me a better deal. But I also know that I have great customer service there. So I think it's funny because, you know, specialty retailers became a thing because people wanted more selection, more service, you know, more options. And now it's kind of going in the opposite direction, right? You have now specialty retailers are are kind of left on an uh, on an island and people aren't going to them as much because people like the convenience of going to one place to shop for everything. Oh, if you know, it's the same book that I can buy on Bar- at Barnes and Noble, I can buy at Amazon, but Amazon gives me 2-day shipping. So I'll just buy it on Amazon, right? I think there's a lot of that going on. Um, yeah. One other thing that, as we were mentioning, I just want to harp on the point that you, you pointed out earlier. What is eroding their competitive advantage is not only these big retailers that are getting into the space, but also, as I mentioned, maybe you know, handing out a, a diamond ring or, or a necklace, maybe... I don't know. I'm just speculating. Maybe coming, you know, not not. It is no longer in fashion. People would yeah. rather go on exotic vacations, for example, or sure. you know, things of that nature. More experiential gift. Um, it, it could be it could be eroding their competitive advantage and their and their market presence uh, also. Yeah, and I, I think there's some there's something to be said for that. There's cultural tastes are different than they used to be. So. Um, you know, people are not spending money on jewelry. They're spending money on vacations and other things that um, eating out more or they don't have as much money to spend. I mean, we w- one of the things that, you know, is, is occurring is also that people are getting married less, right, um, than they used to. And, and that's because of debt and student loans and all of these things that make it more difficult for people to, you know, get married. Uh, and that kind of changes it, if, especially if half your business is based on weddings, right? Um, so I, I do think that there's um, there's something to be said for that also, is that, you know, that's not how people spend their money. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, great. Let's move on to the next question. Uh, what are the company's long-term prospects on runway for growth? So the jewelry market is not really growing, Right, it, it's a two and a half, three percent. You know, so it grows at a re- around the rate of inflation. Their revenue has been pretty stable um, for the last four or five years. So, just as a uh, a numbers game here, it's been in between five point seven and six point two billion from twenty fifteen to twenty nineteen. Um, and you know, there's not a whole lot of growth there. Um, they've been actually shrinking their store count. Uh, fairly, uh, you know, you know, letting uh, leases expire in places that aren't, you know, aren't the best retail markets. Um, I think I want to say that they closed about 200 stores um, in 2019, and they planned on closing 150, so 262 stores in 2019. Um, most of those were places that they already had another store in that same mall. 
uh, which kind of tells you that they were, you know, their own competition in some ways. Um, they were planning to close 150 in 2020. Um, and as I said, the annual report has not come out, so it's a little hard for me to say how many did they actually close. Um, you know, so if anything, they're not, they're shrinking. It's a question of how fast they're shrinking. Um, their e-commerce market is actually growing, but it's a small percentage of their revenue. Mm -hmm. Okay. Let's move on to the next question. Does the company allow, require a lot of capital reinvestment to maintain its business? Can it grow without any further reinvestment? Yeah. So to give you an idea of how much they invested, um, in 2017, they spent $67 million on new stores and $98 million on remodeling. So for a total of $165 million. So that is basically growth and maintenance capex. In 2019, that number was 17 million for new stores and 53 million. So 67 down to 17 and 98 down to 53 for a total of 70 million. So from 166 million to 70 million. So they cut it in more than by more than half in three years. Um, so remodels, I think, are, you know, with 2,000 stores, $50 million, it's not a whole lot per store. And their stores aren't that big their jared stores are bigger but the k and the zales are generally relatively small kind of uh stores so i i just don't see you know a lot of uh you know you, you know and to give you an idea of how much that is changing it's about negative five percent growth in their store space per year so they opened about 40 stores in 2019 and closed 230. Um, so it's, it's definitely shrinking, um, you know, size wise, uh, mm -hmm. and, and retail space wise. Yeah. So just to kind of reiterate your point, the entire jewelry industry is, is only growing at about inflation rate, about yep. 2%. And then on top of that, because of the transformation that they're undergoing, in addition to the industry-wide slowdown or stagnation, they are closing a lot of shops. Um, and you are seeing that reflected in the growth and the maintenance capex or the, the maintenance um, capital investment and then just regular capex for further, further growth. Yeah, and to give you an idea, the e-commerce was in 2019 was about 12% of sales. Um, and it grew by about 40%. So it, it, it is, you know, but what is unclear is, is it really cannibalizing their existing, right? Are people just, instead of going into the store, they're just buying there or is it new customers? And it doesn't look like it's new customers. Mm -hmm. So even if it is, let's say it is not new customers, even if it is existing customers, one of the things that we saw over and over again with these omni-channel online distribution is that it is a higher margin business. Right. So from that perspective, it is not a bad thing that e-commerce business is growing, even though it might be cannibalizing the retail business. Yeah. So it, it really comes down to, you know, if this is an expensive item, let's say you're buying a thousand dollar item, $5 of shipping is not really a big deal. But if you're selling a $30 item, $5 of shipping is basically your entire margin, right? So 
you have to kind of think about it from, you know, jewelry is small. It doesn't weigh much. doesn't cost much to ship. Clothing and other things, have a, it has a bigger impact on them. So for them, e-commerce may have different margins than a clothing retailer where, um, and you also have in, in retail, e-commerce has a lot of uh, much higher return rate, right? And so that, that return rate really impacts your ability to get, um, you know, your margins. So whereas if you're in a brick and mortar store, it's customer's gas and the customer's time that is spent, you know, doing that. So um, just some things to think about when you're looking at these, that all retail businesses aren't the same as far as margins for e-commerce. Mm-hmm. Great. Let's uh, let's hit on this last question for this episode, which is, does the, does the business have favorable relationships with the following? So I'm going to list out four right here. Customers, suppliers, employees, and lastly, regulators slash community. Any uh, red flags that you see here? Yeah, I don't want to dwell too much on on this question because I think we have other stuff to cover. But um, I don't really see anything there that makes me say I would be worried. Um, We will talk a lot about their their finances and stuff like that. Um, But that doesn't really have much to do with... um, you know, I, I don't see any real problems with their customers. They did have some bad PR, um, you know, around uh, when the Me Too movement was happening and things like that. Um, and so they, they kind of shifted. And this was like three years ago. I don't know how much people remember from that and how much it's affected their their sales. I mean, their sales have been kind of flat. Um, but I don't, I don't really see any red flags anywhere. Okay. Sounds great. Thanks for uh, thanks for all the thanks for all the research, the comments, Hari. Um, let's close out this this episode with that. Um, do you have anything to add before we do that, Hari? No, I think the only thing I would really talk about here is, um, you know, we're kind of in this, you know, in the midst of the coronavirus, um, you know, things are kind of unprecedented, right? We're seeing a lot of businesses that have been cut in half in terms of valuations. Um, and, you know, you operate off of imperse- imprecise information, right? If I knew exactly what this company would be like in a year or two, things would be totally different, right? And so you want to remove as much of the risk as possible, right? And so at this point, nothing that I've really said tells you anything about whether or not this is a good stock, right? We've basically just understood the business. We've talked about what the business does. But risk is associated with how much you pay and how likely that this company would just go completely belly up, right? Those are the two things that we have to worry about. And I I don't know about you, Becco, but I have not heard anything that makes me answer any of those questions yet, right? Do you, would you agree with that? Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, and I would also add that there's nothing compelling uh, right. in terms of competitive advantage that draws me further. Right. I would just add that on top of what you said there. Yeah. So this is more for me is a, I'm thinking about this from a cigar butt type model where, you know, this is super cheap or potentially super cheap and it's got to have a huge margin of safety for me to really think about investing. So, um, so that's, that's kind of my preliminary conclusion halfway through this, you know, this discussion. 
Just just Fantastic. so everybody knows what they're thinking, what I'm thinking at this point. Great. All right. Thank you guys for joining us in this episode. Uh, we will see you guys. Oh, well, before you do, again, I just want to iterate, reiterate this. If you guys want a copy of this checklist, please email us, info at valueinvestor.org. And as I mentioned earlier as well, Slack channel, please, if you would like to be part of that, email, email us as well at info at valueinvestor.org. All right. Thank you guys for joining us. We'll see you on the next episode. Thanks. Thanks.